following sermon was preached on August 29, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled The Final Charge on 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. We all know that uh, final words, last words, are very important. So you've got a babysitter and, and you've given them their instruction, and, but as you're about to leave, you repeat the really important and salient things that you want them to remember. Or you've got a, a boss or a manager, and you know what's expected of you, but as he goes away, he, he summarizes the really important parts of the instruction. Well, this is true of spiritual things. Think of Moses' last words that he gave to Israel to sum up uh, their responsibility and God's goodness to them. Or at the end of Joshua, where Joshua does exactly the same thing and delivers to the people his last words, word call, words calling them to covenant faithfulness and obedience. Well, that's what Paul is doing in these two verses that we have before us at the conclusion of 1 Timothy 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. What Paul does in this very simple charge is basically pull together all the strings, the threads of the things uh, that he has covered in this epistle and wraps them up in two basic commandments and then with this hope or proffered grace. So what I want to show you this morning that the final charge consists of a, a responsibility of the gospel minister to guard the truth of God's word to avoid error with respect to his teaching, and to do his ministry in dependence upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's addressing the gospel minister, but as we've seen often in this letter, that, that which Paul says to Timothy is for the church at Ephesus, but it's for the church in all ages, and it's for each of you according to your particular callings and vocations as you sit here this morning. So don't Tune me out because Paul is addressing here gospel ministers. Well, first then, Paul says the gospel minister is to guard the truth or the word of God. First part of verse 20, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. You see the importance and urgency of the commandment in how Paul addresses Timothy. There's no need at the end of the book to address him in this manner. The book has been written to Timothy. He has repeated his name earlier in the book. But this is a very emphatic address now. Oh, oh, Timothy. He's saying, pay attention. Now, sometimes a, a parent will take the, the face of a child and just kind of cuddle it in their hands and say, now, Jonathan, listen to me. Look at mommy. Look at daddy. and Hear what I have to say. That's what Paul is doing with Timothy. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing with each one of us as we are here today, he's taken us, he's saying, listen, listen to me, because what I'm about to say is very important. 
And so Paul directs Timothy and our attention to a responsibility, a stewardship with respect to the truth of God's word. He says, guard what has been entrusted to you. Now, the idea of being entrusted is the idea of a stewardship. A steward is one who is entrusted with someone else's uh, property, uh, possessions, uh, or income, uh, to manage an estate or a house or, or a business. Uh, we exercise a stewardship if we are the trust for somebody's um, estate. Uh, many of us, when we were young, I hope all of you are young with children do the same thing, uh, arrange for guardians to take your children and to rear them in the way you would rear them if you die, and you leave a will unto that end, and they become the trustees, not only of, of, the, of the money of the will, but they become the trustees. They have a stewardship of your children. The Holy Spirit often puts gospel responsibilities in terms of a stewardship. Paul would would say this of himself. He, he says it earlier uh, with respect to Timothy in chapter 1, that there is a, a responsibility that's been entrusted to Timothy. And he, he describes the object of this trust as simply that which has been entrusted to you. In 2 Timothy 1, verses 13 and 14, he expands on this concept. Retain the standards of sound words which you've heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard, through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Now, in, the, in these two verses, the apostle is referring to uh, apostolic truth, not simply that which is in Scripture, that which has been delivered, the, the proper traditions of the church, as he will say in 2 Thessalonians 4. Uh, three, uh, two, thirteen. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from me. So, this, the sound words uh, to which uh, Paul directs Timothy in our attention, this treasure that's been entrusted to us, is in fact a summary of apostolic truth. It is all of the truth of God's word. And Timothy is called on now to this responsibility of a stewardship to guard this treasure. And that entails three things. We, we see those three things in a beautiful summary statement about Ezra the scribe as he's about to return to Jerusalem. It says of Ezra that he set himself to study the law of God, to practice it, and to teach the judgments or the uh, statutes and ordinances to Israel. That's how one guards this, this stewardship that's been entrusted to him. In the first place, you must know it. Paul's reminding Timothy of what he said to him earlier. He is to be nourished um, by the words of faith. Verse 6 of chapter 4, And pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, another concept of steward, constantly nourished, on the words of faith and sound doctrine which you have been following. To be nourished by the truth of God's word is to be living in God's word. It is to hearing God speak to you in God's word. It is being instructed and shaped by the truth, the doctrines and the commandments of the word of God. And you cannot guard that which you do not know. You cannot exercise a proper stewardship over that uh, of which you are ignorant. 
So he's simply saying here that in the first place, Timothy and all of us, we must carefully be in the Word of God. It is a great treasure, isn't it? I hope you understand that. This treasure that God has entrusted to you in your Bibles, summarized in your confessions of faith and your, your catechisms. Right? It's a glorious treasure, and you're to know it. But the proper end of knowing the truth of God's Word is to live it. And so Paul is constantly calling on Timothy to um, live that out that he knows. He tells him in chapter 4, verse 11 or 12, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Or chapter 6, verse 11, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, gladness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. These great fruit of the Spirit, these marks of the Spirit's work in our lives. This is how the Spirit of God shapes you through Scripture. And thus we must always practice that which we learn. In fact, believing and obeying what you read in the Bible is a key to understanding the Bible. If you're not committed to doing it, the Spirit will blind you to it. And then, of course, uh, Timothy is called upon here uh, to guard the word by teaching that word to others. Remember, three times uh, Paul uh, says to him, as he does in chapter 4, verse 11, prescribe and teach these things. Or chapter 5, verse 7, prescribe these things as well, so they may be above reproach. Or in chapter uh, 6, again, he calls uh, in verse 2, teach and preach these principles. Or the, the end there of chapter 4. Do not neglect uh, verse 14 uh, or verse 13 until I give, come give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. So the gospel minister is to be guarding the truth of God by learning it, by living it, and by teaching it. And those of you here today who are ministers of the gospel, this is indeed the Holy Spirit's instruction to each one of us. This must be the, the shaping pattern of our lives and our ministry. You young men who are preparing for ministry are, are thinking about preparing for ministry. This must be the object of your studies and of your life. But remember what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 15, with respect to the church itself. He says, in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So that which Paul says here about Timothy, and we would direct to men in the ministry preparing for the ministry, in fact, is simply the responsibility of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The visible church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the pillar and support of the church, which means the church itself, which has received this glorious revelation from God, is responsible to preserve it, and to live it, to know it, and to teach it. 
And that then holds true for each of you. This is a, an important responsibility of those who will be office bearers in the church, particularly those who will be ruling elders in the church. And as we are praying for and looking amongst ourselves that God will raise up such men, it must be men that are marked by these three things. But each of you, in your walk with the Lord, in your respective calling, has this obligation. You who are heads of households have this with respect to your families. We have it individually as we want to grow in the Christian faith. And so each of us in his calling, in his place, in God's providence where we find ourselves is to be responsible to guard the truth in this manner. Well, the second thing that Paul says is that the gospel minister then must avoid error. Second half of verse 20 and the first part of 21 as you do this, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the truth. Now you notice that Paul says, avoid or reject. Uh, this is not a commandment particularly to refute. That really would come under the guardianship of, of the truth of God to be to refute error. But here... Uh, well, Paul's first taking us back to what is going on here in Ephesus, as we read in chapter 1. These men were teaching strange doctrines, myths, genealogies. They were taking the genealogies of chronicles and making up stories about them, creating myths and moral tales and working out these genealogies. And they were speculating and they were disputing with one another and they were proud in this fruitless discussion. And they, Added to that, as we see in chapter 4, asceticism. They forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God had created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So Paul, as he's directed Timothy's attention to the errors that he must address in the Ephesian church, he now he says, don't get caught up in them yourself by too close an association with those who teach these things, but more particularly by imbibing their spirit or slipping into some of these errors yourself. No, you must guard yourself so that you do not let speculation and fruitless discussion and that which produces not godliness but ungodliness slip into your teaching. He describes the error with these three terms. Uh, in the first place, he says that it is worldly. Being worldly is being just the opposite of being godly. So in chapter 1, as he contrasts true teaching with the false teaching, he says in verse 5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. And later he speaks to us that we are to pursue the truth uh, for godliness. And thus those calls to Timothy uh, to be godly and to teach in a way that will produce godliness. And so our goal in teaching must be to teach that which promotes godliness and not worldliness. 
Second, he categorizes it as empty chatter. In other words, it is foolish and senseless. So he, he talks often in this epistle about the speculation. Verse 4 of chapter 1, which we read, gave rise to speculation rather than the administration of God, which is by faith. Verse 6, turned aside to fruitless uh, discussion. Chapter 6, if anyone advocates a different doctrine that does not agree with sound words, those conforming to godliness, that's the first mark, he's conceited and understands nothing but has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. You know, this is a, an easy thing for any of us to fall into, but it's particularly an easy thing for seminarians to fall into. And the excitement of learning different things, we can get embroiled in disputes with one another about that which is immaterial. And we lose sight of that which is most important. And then the third way he describes it is, in fact, it is ignorance. Posing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. He described their approach to uh, truth in chapter 1, warning, verse 7, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. They are blind and ignorant. Again, uh, in, in chapter 6, as he reviews, uh, he says they are, in verse 4, they're conceited and understand nothing. Now, they're proud and they think they know a lot. And that's what pride does, as we saw we looked at that passage uh, earlier, that in pride we get consumed with our own knowledge, and that is the knowledge that Paul says is puffed up and is arrogant. It's not the knowledge that is unto holiness. And so Paul is warning us that we must avoid entangling ourselves in approaches to truth that uh, would be like this. We must avoid the errors themselves. There, there's a tension between there's some people we have to read in order to be able to, um, to refute them, but we don't want to get caught up in enjoyment of that, which we are reading in order to refute. We don't want to turn back to it. Um, no, we, we, we read it as we have to. We read it to understand it. We read it to, to re refute it, but we don't get entangled in it. And we don't pursue these avenues of of speculation. I mentioned to one of the classes Thursday that the mark of Calvin the Institutes is he was tethered to the Word of God. And often, as you read the Institutes, you'll see him say that. You know, we speak thus far because the Bible speaks, but we can't go beyond this. And that is a very important rule for every one of us. This is how you avoid getting entangled in these things by being tethered to the Word of God, and then avoid in your teaching. Do not teach vain speculations. Do not teach empty chatter. Do not teach so-called knowledge. Avoid it. Be people of the Word of God committed to the instruction of the Word of God. To motivate us, he goes on to tell us what happens to those who often follow error. He says, uh, of those who uh, 
these opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the truth. Some have made uh, uh, claims to this knowledge, to being superior in the church over others. But the principle that Paul shows here is, is that, as we've said often in Timothy, that the declension into error is a progressive devolution. Tackles not be progressive in any way. It's a devolution. Um, one error leads to another, just as one sin leads to another. And so these people, he says, that are professing this superior knowledge, looks what can happen. They've gone astray from the faith. He's already warned about this as well, uh, of those. He talks about uh, the end of chapter 1, Hymenaeus and Alexander. They made shipwreck of the faith. They started off in a, in a fairly innocent place, fooling with some error, but that error just continued to, to devolve, and uh, they became increasingly depraved and, and corrupt in their understanding. And they came to the point where making shipwreck of the faith, they did exactly what Paul says here will happen, and that is they've, they've gone astray uh, concerning the faith. The faith here, as Paul uses it in this way, has to do with the objective teaching of the Word of God, that which he calls uh, orthodoxy or, or sound words. What he's showing us is that you cannot begin to play with error and not fall away. Absolute danger of error. For that's how error operates, you understand. We'll take a, a simple illustration. Let's say that you're, you're on a hike and you've got a compass and you're supposed to be at a certain point and you're simply a point off, just a minor point. Now, if you just go a, a few hundred yards, you can look and you can see uh, you know, you're off course. But if you're going a mile or two miles, you can't see then the consequence of, of what's happening. So although the, the, the starting place could just be just the, a millimeter off, the end point can be what Paul describes here, turning away from the faith. We see it, uh, again, so many ways. Again, another class this week, we looked at some of the various schemes of, of the plan of salvation. And we do so... Because what we see is all these other schemes outside of a, a, a consistent particularism begins in a wrong place. And they all produce error, some more serious than others. But they all produce error. And error leads to more error. We praise God that we're inconsistent. Often the Spirit keeps us from the logical conclusions of our error, but error leads to error. You take one of those schemes. You take what we call the sacerdotalism of the Roman Catholic Church, where they mechanize salvation and put it all into a magical working of the sacraments through the administration of the church and the priest, and it leads to eternal damnation. It leads to a work salvation. Or to take a more modern example, uh, many of those who went into federal vision began with a wrong view of the sacraments. They thought that the, the sacraments would do something in their own apart from faith. And that led them then to thinking that, well, baptism, 
Baptism can simply change me, bring me into the body of Christ and, and bring me into union with Christ. And suddenly, a deviant view of the sacrament that is not soul-destroying leads to a soul-destroying doctrine. That's what Paul's warning about. This is why error is so serious. This is why we must be on guard, to guard ourselves. And again, we thank God that we have a, an accepted confession of faith and catechism that throws a fence up around us as a church. And as you're here, you can be confident you will not hear anything outside that fence. We believe that fence is biblically based. It's not speculative. It's truth. It's truth unto godliness. It's truth by which we can be nourished. So as we think about this responsibility to guard this stewardship entrusted to us and to avoid the dangers of false teaching, uh, we recognize the difficulty of the calling, as Timothy would, as a, as a gospel minister. And so the third thing that Paul says here is the gospel minister is uh, sustained by depending upon the grace of God. We can't do it on our own. Paul cries out in 2 Corinthians, I'm undone. I'm inadequate. Who is sufficient for these things? And that's what Paul anticipates now in this very simple benediction. Now, a benediction is not a prayer. Uh, it is not a a human act, a benediction as we use it in the service uh, with divine warrant, is in fact God's pronouncing a blessing. The pattern of it comes from number six and then these benedictions that the apostle gives along with the salutations in the various apostolic letters. And just as a, uh, as a rest stop, parenthesis, uh, at, Next week, I'll begin a mini-series in worship, uh, and then we'll take a Sunday school hour and talk some about the elements of worship and uh, review more particularly what we've said in some of these sermons about doxologies and benedictions and whatever. But this is a blessing pronounced by God. Now, it's the most abrupt one that the apostle gives. Usually, the benedictions are longer. But here, it's just quite succinct. Grace be with you. Now, there's one textual difference here. The textual basis of the New King James has you in the singular. And the textual basis for the ESV, the New American Standard, has you in the plural. Both have you in the plural at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Um, so it really doesn't matter. In the plural, it's a greater emphasis that this is a letter to the church. We already know that it's to the church through Timothy. Timothy's called to teach and preach these things. Um, but grace be unto you. What is this grace now that God is bestowing on uh, Timothy? It is the application to the minister and to the Christian in his life of all the work of the Lord Jesus Christ to enable that person to continue to walk in the way that God has called him. An application of all that Christ has accomplished for us to enable us to walk in the way that God has called and directed us. It is indeed divine assistance. 
when Paul first addressed the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, after calling them to shepherd the flock of God, remember he then said to them in verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He's warned them about false teachers from without. He's warned them about false teachers within. And in the seriousness of their charge, he commends them to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. That's what he's saying here when he says, grace be unto you. He's saying that God will give you that which you need. So the grace by which God first brought you unto himself when he converted you and brought you into union with Christ Jesus by the Spirit through faith uh, is the grace that continues to be operative in your life. And so, as we had in our meditation, he's begun a good work in you. He will bring it to completion. So the grace that God gives to us is, in fact, the strength that we need to live in obedience to him and to fulfill the ministry which he's called us to do. We don't do it in our own strength. We don't live the Christian life in our own strength. We don't exercise ministry in our own strength. We don't trust in the flesh. We trust in the Holy Spirit. So to receive this grace, which God promises us here, he's granted to us what the Bible calls the means of grace. In larger catechism 153, what does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us by reason of the transgression of the law? That we may escape the wrath and curse of God due to us by reason of the transgression of the law. He requires of us repentance toward God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, and the diligent use of the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his mediation. Now it's this last part. The first part, faith and repentance, brings us in union with Christ. But then the use of the outward means by which Christ communicates to us the benefits of all that he's accomplished. So the next question is, what are those outward means? The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us, to his church, the benefits of his mediation are all his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for their salvation. So on the one hand, God is bestowing on us grace. But God expects us to use the means that he has appointed to accomplish his work in our lives. And if we're going to enjoy then the fruit of this divine supernatural blessing, we devote ourselves to these means of grace, word, prayer, and sacrament in particular, but uh, stewardship, uh, Sabbath keeping, spiritual conversation, fasting, we, we use these privately then. Uh, we are, that's why we're to be in the Word and uh, in prayer and meditation and private worship of God. That's why we involve ourselves in Christian fellowship and um, community. Uh, and we need those things. Not, not in the way that some evangelicals talk about it, that uh, if you don't have your devotions tomorrow morning, you have a bad day. That's superstition. No, if you don't have your devotions in the morning, you ought to miss it. And you realize that it's like going without food. You know, you'll be, you could be weaker. Because these are the things that God uses to enable you to serve him well. But above all, it's the corporate means of grace that God blesses most to his church. That's why corporate worship on the Lord's Day is so eminently important. And why we're committed to two services on the Lord's Day. Because here, 
God comes to us in a way that he does not in any other aspect of our lives this side of heaven. We come in a special way into God's special presence. Preaching is the primary means of grace, accompanied with the sacraments, and God manifests himself to us in the assembly of his people. So if we're going to enjoy this grace that God promises, gives to us here, we must use the means that God has appointed unto that end. And so we, we see that the gospel minister, and by inference every one of us in his calling, is to be devoted to guarding the stewardship of the truth of God's word, the Bible, is to assiduously avoid error in our thinking and conversations and teaching, and is to live in dependence upon the grace of God. You can imagine a very godly man or woman dying and calls his family to come. Those last words are so very important, aren't they? Those words such as Moses gave to Joshua and Joshua to the sons of Israel. The words that Paul gives to Timothy here and in these pastoral epistles to, to the church. They're words that should ring in our ears and cause us to understand the importance the Holy Spirit has for us as a church in this final charge. A charge that I hope you've seen sums up what Paul has been teaching here that we are to know and to practice and to teach the Word of God, that we are to avoid uh, the foolish errors of the world and that creep up in the church, and we're to live in dependence upon uh, the grace of the Holy Spirit using the means that God has given unto us. And this particular then is going to be, by God's grace, the mark of Antioch Presbyterian Church. This is something what it means to be a means of grace church. Means of Grace Church is a church that is committed to these three things. The promotion of truth in knowledge, practice, and instruction. The refutation, avoidance of error. And a church that will live in a conscious dependence upon the Spirit of Christ, applying to us the work of Christ, both individually and corporately. That is what we're about. That is what we want to be known as. By God's grace, we will progress in that area. That also means as members, our future members of Antioch Presbyterian Church, that you're to hold initially Mr. Groff and me accountable to what I've said today. This is what you are to be. This is what you all are to do. In the future, as God gives us office bearers, this is what we will look for in those men whom God will send amongst us to help shepherd the flock. And if there comes a time when you call a pastor other than Mr. Groff or me, which could either be him or someone else, this is what you're going to look for. This is the kind of man that you want. This is how the Holy Spirit builds and grows churches. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.